You're listening to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we talk once again to Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Dr. Roberts served in the U.S. government under President Reagan. He's held many prominent positions in academia and media and has won countless awards. Today, he is one of the few and brave voices who have thrown caution to the wind by providing an analysis of current events that goes against the grain and needs to be said, and which very few are willing to do. He provides an immense value for us all, and we'll be covering what is most pressing on his mind and where he thinks current geopolitical tensions and economic bubbles may lead to. And thanks again for coming on, Dr. Roberts. It's always nice to speak with you. Now, I'd like to mention some themes and see where you'd like to go from there. I've got four themes. The first is uh, you've spoken much about your concern for nuclear war, the real prospects for military conflict between U.S., NATO, and Russia, China. In fact, our last interview covered that about a year ago, so people can go listen to that. And a recent study by Italian professor Ugo Bardi, who we've interviewed, mentioned, uh, which the MIT uh, review cited, uh, mentioned statistical data that points to war being hardwired into the human societal structure. And they're suggesting that, you know, the future won't be as peaceful as we might think, uh, and as people, as Steven Pinker might, might think. Uh, we see flashpoints that can develop anywhere from Ukraine, Crimea, Iran, Korea, Venezuela, the South China Sea, Syria. So that's one point war. The second are the financial bubbles, which are ready to burst. Uh, the third, the U.S. becoming increasingly divided and polarized with identity politics. Uh, you've been uh, writing a lot about that lately, and it seems to be leading towards a paralyzing political crisis. And finally, the, you know, Police states, uh, the, the media, how it's becoming more controlled. We're seeing people being deplatformed completely from systems, you know, Apple, Google, Microsoft services. And now the Pentagon has come up with some app called NewsGuard, which is being installed in schools uh, and computers, which will determine what source is cre credible and wh what source is not. So, you know, those are the four themes. Which one would you like to start off with first, or perhaps there's something else that I haven't mentioned? Well, we can just go in your order. Okay. Um, uh, you, you know, there, there are only really two destabilizing forces in the world. One is the United States, and the other is Israel. The United States is a militarily destabilizing Force because of the neoconservatives who have an ideology of American hegemony. And this uh, ideology is nonsensical, but it serves the purpose of the military security complex, which is the largest uh, private interest group in the world, <laughs> and certainly the largest in the United States. The budget annual budget of the military security complex is $1,000 billion. So that's an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of power goes with it. So it's uh, critical that the military security complex has enemies that justify such an enormous uh, take from American taxpayers. And so the ideology that provides that cover is neoconservatism, American hegemony, America as the indispensable country, the exceptional country that is above all law, both international and its own. <laughs> so this is a prime source of uh, military destabilization. It explains uh, all of the provocations against Russia and China, uh, the provocations against Iran. It explains the American wars of the last 20 years in the Middle East and North Africa. It explains the uh, Washington's destabilization of countries in uh, Latin America, such as Honduras and uh, Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina. So there you have it. And 
there's no real reason for military conflicts. Uh, the Russians have not uh, been aggressive. They don't have an aggressive policy uh, of conquest, uh, neither do the Chinese. But these are rising powers that are perceived as threats to American hegemony. And so they have been declared enemies. And there's really not anything they can do about it because it's not subject to diplomacy. Uh, their role is to be an enemy. It has to be an enemy in order to justify the budget and power of the military security complex. Uh, the neoconservatives also are primarily uh, Zionist Jews. And so they use this uh, hegemony to uh, remake the Middle East in Israel's interest or they attempt to do that. In fact, they were doing it very successfully until uh, the Russians intervened in Syria. So that is basically that story. Um, the United States uh, continues to provoke China. Uh, this is a serious mistake. There's no reason for it, no objective reason, just the self-interest of a powerful military security complex in the United States. So what we see is, so far, uh, there are no real checks on Israeli uh, acts of aggression or American acts of aggression. In Syria, uh, the Russians have put some checks. I believe also the Russians are not going to permit an American-Israeli attack on Iran. Uh, but again, there's no reason for uh, the United States to attack Iran except to accommodate Israel. The main problem in the Middle East is that Israel has its sights set on southern Lebanon. Of course, it has its sights set on more territory, but currently it's southern Lebanon because of the water resources. Twice Israel has sent the army in to occupy southern Lebanon, and twice it's been driven out by the Hezbollah militia. Well, who supplies the Hezbollah militia? It was Iraq, Syria, and Iran. And thus, Iraq, Syria, and Iran were on the hit list to be destabilized, uh, turned into chaos, so as to deprive Hezbollah of support so that Israel could occupy southern Lebanon. That's essentially what the wars of the last 20 years have been about. So we can move on to your next topic. Just a final question on that. Um do you think the troops will pull out of Syria? We last spoke, interviewed uh, Elijah Magnier, who says the war in Syria is over. Others say they might be repositioning troops for Iran. Do you think they would go ahead on Iran? Uh, not unless uh, Putin lets them. Um, just as it's not in Russia's, ish, Russia's interest to have uh, Syria destabilized, it's even less in Russia's interest to have Iran destabilized. So unless uh, Putin uh, permits it, maybe hoping, uh, you know, the Russians are always hoping for an agreement. This is nonsensical. It shows they don't really understand <laughs> the situation that the United States has to have them as an enemy and therefore is not going to come to terms. I mean, this is, this is the reason Trump is in trouble. He, he said he was going to normalize with, with relations with Russia. Well, this is what all Russiagate and all the accusations and the Mueller investigation, it's all to stop Trump from normalizing relations with Russia. So I think sooner or later, this has to dawn on the Russian government. And so I doubt very much they would permit an American-Israeli attack on, on Iran.
And moving on then, as you say, to the second topic, the economy. It seems like uh, many analysts for a decade now or you know, have been saying we're near this collapse. We have you know, the biggest debt bubble, I guess, in the history of the world. Um, bubbles, they call it the everything bubble now. Um, and you know, each year it seems we're getting near the cliff. So you know, what's your take there and how, how might that play out uh, as well as this uh, move towards de-dollarization? Uh, countries around the world are trying to get out of the dollar. Some say that's going to take a long time. Uh, and so what are your thoughts on the economy? Okay, well, for a long time, I also thought that um, the economic situation uh, was untenable and that there would be some form of uh, collapse because the uh, financial problem that uh, showed itself in 2007-2008 was never addressed. It's still there. In fact, it's worse because uh, one result of that crisis, uh, the authorities per permitted even more concentration of financial institutions. So the notion that you have banks that are too big to fail, this obviously is a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. <laughs> You're not supposed to have companies <laughs> so big. So uh, <clears throat> I thought too, it was untenable, but what I didn't suspect uh, was because it never would have been possible uh, in my day treasury was that the, the Federal Reserve would simply rig the markets and it does it's not just the bond market that it rigs by purchasing bonds to keep the price high and thereby interest rates low but the plunge protection team which was formed uh, the last year of the Reagan administration by the George Herbert Walker Bush elements in the government uh, to prevent a market crash that might deprive George Herbert Walker Bush of the Republican presidential nomination and the election. This plunge protection team um, was created in order to intervene in equity markets to prevent a crash. It is now used, in my opinion, routinely to prevent any substantial market fall. What happens, in my opinion, is when the market starts to correct, and there's some danger it's going to start running away downwards. The Treasury, you know, backed by the Federal Reserve resources, purchases standard and poor futures. They go in and purchase what is called S&P future contracts, which drives the price of equities back up. So we have seen many times what looks like the beginning of a major market correction. Every time the Fed lets it go on a little bit, not much. For example, it'll go down, uh, say, today uh, 400 points, and it'll go back up tomorrow 300. And then it goes down another 400. It goes back up 300. So they let it down. They let it inch down a little at a time without a momentum starting that would take it way down, cause a crisis. So since the Federal Reserve now has a trading desk, it can trade everything, not just bonds, but stocks, that is, equities, currencies, commodities. It can control the gold price. So you have a situation where the markets are rigged by the central banking authorities. And we see that the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank and the Bank of England cooperate with the Federal Reserve. 
So as long as you have that type of capability and the willingness of the government authorities to intervene like this, see, in previous days, they wouldn't have thought this was legitimate. But today, it's routine. So as long as they can rig these markets, um, they can prevent the type of crisis everyone suspects. What could undo it? It could be undone eventually from what is called uh, the de-dollarization. The reason it works is that the dollar is the world reserve currency and everyone's willing to hold it. So if the Federal Reserve creates another trillion dollars to prop up the market, it doesn't devalue the dollar. But if countries move away from the use of the dollar such that the demand for the dollar as a transaction currency, as the currency for transacting international trade, if it ceases to play that role in a major way, then when the Fed creates another trillion dollars to prop up the equity market or the bond market or whatever, it could cause a flight from the dollar. The dollar could start losing value. And in that way, the Fed would lose control. So I think, and I may be wrong, that until the dollar is largely abandoned as a transaction currency in international trade, and not just for oil, but for all of international trade, until the dollar is largely abandoned, the Federal Reserve can continue to rig the system. And they rig it hand in hand with Japanese, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of England. Uh, we, we know for a fact that the Japanese Central Bank purchases equities. But the Japanese Central Bank owns a significant percentage of the Japanese stock market. <laughs> so we can see there, it's plain as day. We can see that they are supporting stock prices in Japan. Japanese Central Bank supports equity prices. In the United States, apparently the Federal Reserve is not buying stocks. It's not accumulating a stock portfolio the way it has a bond portfolio. But it intervenes by, pur by purchasing Standard & Poor futures contracts to prevent the market running away downward. So it all depends on how long the dollar survives as the world as the main currency for transacting foreign trade. And as you say, I mean, that could, well, you know, take a while. So I guess we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, another topic that I find just very pertinent, interesting is the media and how the narrative is uh, being more and more controlled through social media, the mainstream media. And we've, see, we've seen people left and right starting to get deplatformed uh, everywhere. And, you know, how do you sense it? You know, many people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps even millions, read your writings. They're translated all around the world. Um, how do you, what's your take on, on the environment? Uh, on the media environment, you know, I mentioned they have this new app, NewsGuard, which I mean is is incredible. It's telling us, you know, Russia today is propaganda is Russian government funded media, therefore it's propaganda. But Voice of America is U.S. government funded media, so it's not propaganda. Um, and so, you know, they're deplatforming and they're making it harder to do the things that we're doing. Uh, I'm just afraid for the future, the coming years, the next generation uh, uh, of young people. They won't have access. They'll just have access to one narrative, and it'll become like 1984. Uh, what's your take on the media landscape? Yeah, the media, the American media, and I believe also uh, 
the British and European media. They're not media. They're, they're propaganda ministry. And they represent the views of the ruling class, which is expressed through the government and through the major corporations. So the United States no longer has reporters or media, the, the newspapers, the TV stations, the print and TV media, national public radio. These are propaganda ministries. Uh, they are propaganda ministries for the military security complex, and currently for the Democratic Party because they are against uh, President Trump. Uh, they are propaganda ministries for identity politics. That is, they are very anti-white heterosexual male. And this has come about for several reasons. One, in the last year of the Bill Clinton presidency, six mega corporations were permitted to buy up 90% of the American print and TV media. So what had been an independent, at least in terms of ownership, an independent media ceased to exist because 90% went into the hands of six companies. So where there had been a couple of thousand independent media sources, now, no. Well, once you're in, a, in corporate hands like that, you are subject to the interests of the corporations and to the advertising revenues. And since corporations are sensitive to government policy, you become sensitive to government. So there is no such thing in the United States of an independent media outside of the internet. And as you say, they're now moving to control access to the uh, part of the internet that tells a different story from the official story. I don't know what's to stop them, except the development of alternative. Why Google? Why doesn't Russia? Why doesn't China? Why don't other countries produce their own kinds of internet access institutions? The whole world, uh, I think, for many reasons, decided to piggyback on what the Americans did. <laughs> and as a consequence, they're losing the voice. As you said, uh, RT can be declared to be a propaganda minister and shut and shut down. Or basically what I see happening, it forces RT in America to take a more and more and more moderate line, to report less strongly, to overlook certain things in order not to be closed out. So I, I think it takes something that's probably unlikely, you know, as a chance for China and Russia and India, large countries, to develop a free media. But the Chinese seem to be afraid of a free media. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think the Russians are, but for some reason uh, we don't see substitute. We don't see Google and uh, and Facebook and Twitter and these other institutions that are used to control opinion, to control the explanations. We don't see them being displaced by open free ones. It's something very easy that Russia could do, I think, and, and India and China. They have the technology, the resources, 
and they could take over the leadership of freedom. Uh, like essentially, they could put Google out of business. They could put Apple out of business. They could, they could, they could put Twitter and Facebook out of business. Um, maybe it'll eventually happen, but this, in my view, is a failure of the rest of the world to respond to the United States control over explanations. The American media is a propaganda ministry. It's used to control the explanations. For example, we know for a fact Russia did not invade Ukraine. <laughs> if Russia had invaded Ukraine, Ukraine wouldn't be there. <laughs> There's nothing Ukraine could do about it. Uh, and yet, we're told constantly, 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 Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia invaded, Russia invaded Ukraine. Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. And yet, we're told over and over and over and over. Assad did not use chemical weapons, yet we're told over and over and over and over. Iran does not have nuclear weapons, yet we're told over and over and over and over. And so as long as they can control these explanations, for example, there is no evidence whatsoever of Russiagate. It's a complete construction. And yet we're told over and over and over, Trump and Putin, Trump and Putin, Trump and Putin. So with the explanations controlled, it makes democracy uh, inoperable. The people end up supporting the government's horrendous, evil, illegal policies because that's all they hear from the media. And so the people say, well, the government must be right. Well, I don't know what can be done about it. I think that um, the Russians are derelict, the Chinese are derelict, the Indians are derelict. Of course, we wouldn't permit the Japanese to do it or the Europeans to do it. They wouldn't be permitted. But we don't have that control over Russia, China, and India. So maybe one day they'll wake up. <laughs> hope so. <laughs> and, um, you know, what thoughts do you have, final thoughts, concluding thoughts for us, uh, you know, at the start of 2019 here? Any, any final thoughts for us? Well, let's go to the most probably the most important of the subjects that you mentioned at the beginning, and that is identity politics. In the United States, identity politics is now the politics of the Democratic Party. Let's understand what identity politics is. Formally, the Democratic Party represented the working class, the unions. The Republicans represented business. And so there was a balance. You had two parties, each was a check on the other, and therefore neither side could run away with it. You had to uh, consider the interest of business, you had to consider the interest of the unions, the working class, and this gave us a livable country. There were various reforms, there were compromises, the, um, the incomes of the people were rising over time, there were opportunities, that we were called an opportunity society, there were ladders of upward mobility, and it's the reason people wanted to come here, because they could, they could rise. There were no constraints blocking poorer people from rising up. Well, what happened? When the Democrats permitted the offshoring of American manufacturing jobs, when they the Bill Clinton people essentially sold out the working class to the business interests. This is where the Clintons' fortune 
has come from. You know, their personal fortune now is something like $150 million. And the foundation is uh, something like uh, $1,500,000,000. All that was their reward for selling out the working class because once the manufacturing firms move the jobs offshore to China and other parts of Asia, that was the end of the industrial unions, the manufacturing unions. And it was also the end of the uh, working class financial ability to support the Democratic Party. So they are now dependent on the same sources of money as the Republicans. So the two parties are now funded by the same private interest groups. So they, they no longer, <laughs> uh, one representing business, one representing labor. That's over. They represent business. So, what has happened then is that we no longer have the sort of class conflict, you know, capitalist workers, business labor. That has been replaced. Who's taken the place of the capitalist is the white heterosexual male. He is now the explorer. And what has taken the place of the worker is all the victim groups, women, homosexuals, um, racial minorities. And of course, on a worldwide basis, these racial minorities are vast majorities. <laughs> it's white people who are a tiny minority in the world, <laughs> you know. Um, and there are more people, there, there are more people in India alone than there are white people everywhere in the world. So we now have a situation where it's the white heterosexual male that is the explorer. And so all the hatred of Marxism that used to go on the capitalist and all the uh, support for the working class. Now, all that is turned against the white working class or the remains. So that what has been historically the leadership in the country is now under fierce attack. The white male is racist, sexist, misogynist, homo homophobic. And we see hatred preached of white males. And it's preached openly. We have had recently um, in American universities uh, statements that white DNA is an abomination and must be exterminated. We've, we've got people uh, calling for uh, the annihilation of whiteness. They won't say white people, they'll say whiteness, by which they mean the culture, everything, everything that Western civilization is whiteness. It has to go. And this is the reason the Democrats are so much in favor of illegal immigration because they are now aligned with the victims of white people and they want them here to vote for Democrats. I don't think the Democrats, I think the Democrats have lost the white vote and their opposition to protecting America's borders has to alienate the American people, which is still majority white. So what we see here is a population that is split and at each other's throats. In other words, 
the assimilation that once characterized the United States and immigration, immigration into America, they were all assimilated. Uh, you know, no one has ever been worse treated by the English than the Irish. <laughs> and yet, they get assimilated into essentially what was an English colony. Um, the people who came here, you know, there's, no, there's really no such thing as white people. They're Poles, German, Polish people, Germans, Italians, Greeks, English, French, Germans. They've spent centuries fighting each other. <laughs> but now they're whites. <laughs> and they are the oppressors. You may remember that Hillary Clinton, running for president, declared the American working class to be the Trump deplorables. So when the Democratic presidential nominee declares the white working class to be the deplorables, and the white working class was always the backbone of the Democratic Party, <laughs> you can see the victory of identity politics. It's an enormous victory. So today we have a situation where if a white person just using ordinary language, much of which has now been pronounced uh, off limits, uh, just the common ways of speaking, common uh, phrases, if you use them now, this proves that you're a racist or a sexist or we have a situation where professors in universities can't use the term girls. If they use the term girls, they get called into diversity training, sensitivity training. Or the consequence when you split the population like this is there's no unity to stand against the government. There's no way for the government to oppose all of the police, uh, sorry, for the people to oppose all the police state measures because um, the blacks, the feminists, they'll want to use the police state measures against the white males. <laughs> it never dawns on them that it might be used against them. But oh, how we can now really punish these white males. So what you see here is the collapse of the ability of the population to resist arbitrary government power. And that's the achievement of identity politics. I don't think it's dawned on them yet, but that's what has happened. Anytime the population is at each other's throats, there's no constraint on the government. So, for all practical purposes, in the United States, civil liberties have ceased to exist. You cannot have multiculturalism and identity politics. There has to be assimilation. There has to be uh, mutual understanding and concern when there's only hatred between the groups. And it's now preached openly. And where do you think this might finish? Do you think Trump uh, finishes term? People are saying his chances for re-election are, are um, pretty good. Uh, or do you see like another second civil war type scenario? I, I think if uh, they get rid of Trump, it means uh, identity politics is what? Mm -hmm. And it will be very painful to be a white person in America. They'll start leaving like the South Africans are now leaving for Russia. You see, it's already happening. You know, in, in South Africa, they teach white uh, hatred of whites. You know, it's. Um, kill the farmer, steal his land. Uh, we now see where 
the farmers have appealed to Putin, please, can we come to Russia? We're good farmers. He said, all right, come on. I think uh, if they prevail over Trump, that is, if his supporters, I think his supporters understand what's going on. But if they prevail over Trump, I think the whites have leadership. And therefore, they're sitting ducks. You see, a white person can't say anything about a woman or a black, but a woman or a black can say whatever they want about a white person. And nothing happens. But if the white person says it, they get fired, they're terminated. Black or woman can say it, nothing. It's free speech. <laughs> so political correctness only applies to white people. And only white people can be guilty of racism or sexual uh, harassment or whatever. So it's already that way. Um, when I went to universities, there was like a dean of students and a president. Well, today, the administration, I think, outnumbers the faculty. There are endless associate deans, assistant deans, provost, provost, assistant provost, and they're all police. They uh, uh, monitor complaints. Uh, the other day, a professor somewhere in language, a language professor explaining the difference between romantic languages and the flowery, the flowery words and the flowery expressions and the vagueness of it all compared to the short, precise Anglo-Saxon words. Well, he used Anglo-Saxon. The black student, Randy the Dean, said he was a racist and he gets reprimanded. We have in the United States the impossibility of studying the genetic basis for intelligence. They stripped away all of the... Uh, awards and, and appointments of Watson, the discoverer of DNA, because he says intelligence is partly genetic based. No, that's not acceptable. Genetic intelligence is entirely due, they say, to environment. In that way, they can blame white people because the black average IQ is lower. And they can say it's because they're oppressed by white people. So they won't even let the Nobel laureate who discovered DNA state his belief based on his life work that there is a genetic basis to intelligence. We know all the IQs are different. We know the IQs, the we're talking about the average IQs, not of the average IQs of, of Asians, Jews, Blacks, whites, they're different. That's a proven fact. But you're not allowed to say they're different because of genetics. You can only say they're different because of environment. And then this lets them blame white people because the average IQ of blacks is lower. It doesn't mean they're not any blacks with high IQs. There are. There are a lot of blacks with high IQs. But the average IQ of blacks is lower than the average IQ of Asians, blacks, uh, whites, and Jews. But for some reason, the Asians and the Jews are not blamed for the lower average IQ of blacks, only in whites. So you can see how crazy it is when Nobel laureates who discover the structure of DNA cannot express their own scientific conviction without being ridiculed, punished, and cast and turned into an outcast. James Watson, 
was stripped of all his positions at the laboratory he has long headed and made famous for simply stating what he regards to be a scientific fact. Now, he could be wrong, but being wrong doesn't make you a racist. <laughs> it's not like they said, well, you're wrong. We don't agree. You're wrong. No, they said, oh, he wouldn't have said that if he wasn't a racist. Well, in, in the United States, the people who want to study the genetic basis of race or intelligence or anything, they have to do it underground in secret. Like Samzadot used to have to spread information secretly in Russia. They can't hold an open conference. He was effectively deplatformed, I guess. He was, yeah, he was deplatformed. Now, the guy who discovered the double helix, along with, with Crick, Watson and Crick. Uh, I mean, this was no mean feature. <laughs> In fact, it's the basis of almost everything going on today. But this guy is the platform. So, in other words, identity politics has asserted power over science. Identity politics is not science. It's a crock. <laughs> it's a stupid ideology with no basis in anything except hate. And yet it's triumphed over science. So you tell me, what kind of country is this? See, it's just like what happened to, genetic, to geneticists in Russia during, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Tofim uh, Lasinko. Lasinko was a Russian. Uh, he disputed the theory of genetics. It wasn't consistent with Marxism. He got Stalin behind him. The entirety of Soviet genetics was wiped out. They were either dismissed from their university positions or executed. And so Soviet genetics fell behind for decades and decades and decades. And then it turned out all of Lysenko stuff was a crop. <laughs> Consequently, many people starved to death because his genetic theories didn't work and growing food and so on and so on. Well, we now are doing the same thing. That's now happening. It's being repeated in the United States. So it shows the power of ideology over science. See, Lysenko alone was able to overturn Soviet genetics. Lysenko was totally wrong. So I... When you look at the United States, uh, I would say it has no future. I don't know how you, once you teach women to hate men, blacks to hate whites, how do you get back from that? You see what I mean? How do you get back from it? Now, of course, not all women hate men, not all blacks hate whites. But significant percentages are affected by this. And so things happen, and it makes the whites more and more concerned. And they, it gets them against the blacks and the Latinos. And so when you replace... Uh, citizenship with groups that hate one another, you don't have a country. L look at all the trouble in the Middle East because of uh, the difference between the uh, Sunni and the Shia. These people have been powerless for centuries because they're so disunited they cannot resist the foreign colonial power. 
They couldn't resist the French, the British. The United States can walk in because the populations hate each other more than they hate the outsider coming into the country. And each side wants to use the outsider against the other. So, you know, if you look at the impotence of the Middle East, and then because of the religious split between Shia and Sunni, this made them victims of the West for hundreds of years. You know, the French and the British sat down and drew up the boundaries, said, Here's, you can have this part, and we'll take this part. Here's another part for you. Here's a part for us. And, and these people, numerous people, warrior people, they couldn't do anything because they hated each other worse than they hated the colonials and the imperialists. If, if Iraq had been a unified country and the Americans had gone in there, the American army would have been destroyed. <laughs> so there you see it. You see this is what's happening here now in the United States. There's no unity. There's no truth. The explanations are controlled. You can't know what's going on unless it's a full-time job to find out. Or you hit on somebody who does make it his full-time job and you trust them. So that's the situation. And of course, this is what the Russians and the Chinese, they're dealing with. If they wait long enough, the country's going to fall apart. This country is going to fall apart. And the notion of a great American superpower, you know, this is already an anachronism. How long has it been since the United States invaded Afghanistan? 18 years. 18 years. The American superpower has still not defeated a few thousand lightly armed Taliban. But it's going to go to war with Russia and China. <laughs> so, I didn't mean to get off on that for so long, but people don't understand it. Not just here, but all over the world. They don't understand Identity politics is not just some sort of a university thing or a joke. Um, it's undoing the cement that held the country together. The country essentially is dissolving under the attack of identity politics. It's a far more effective form of Marxism than the class warfare. It's, it's the new form of Marxism. <laughs> yeah, I actually find it difficult. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of these things you're talking about coming a decade ago, having studied history. And so I just kind of decided to leave uh, the U.S. And I find it difficult talking when I visit the U.S. And I mean, even here, I meet a lot of uh, people that subscribe to identity politics. And a lot of them come from, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon countries like U U.S., New Zealand, Australia, they all have that same ideology. And I just can't, I mean, I can't talk to them because <laughs> they're so uh, very irrational. And I find it much more comfortable living in a more traditional structures such as, you know, Kazakhstan and Central Asia, where I am now, or, or, or even Mexico. Just things are more normal and, and based on science, uh, as you say, you can just get on with life and people... People just work and do things they've been doing, trying to get get along, and and you know I guess one of my ways to deal with the identity politics uh, last year I became a Mexican, a Mexican citizen. So <laughs> I learned I learned Spanish. I I, I uh, assimilated some Mexican culture. So if anyone wants to call me anything, you know, I just pull out my my Mexican passport. <laughs> I'm I'm Mexican, so you can't can't call me. <laughs> well, all right, uh, Dr. Roberts, it's been great um, talking with you. Uh, I'd like to remind listeners that you've got many books on different subjects they can get from your website, from, from Amazon. They should go out and buy those, as well as leave you uh, 
a donation and uh, you know how can people best follow and support your work again well the website is just paulcraigroberts.org it's not .com it's .org and um, it uh, works off of donations and there's a donate page and they can see how to do that if they're so inclined and um, that's that's about it. It's a simple thing. I don't sell anything. I I don't think you can buy books off my site. You'd have to go to the publishers or Amazon or some book seller. Um, but um, basically, um, I show I give alternative explanations to the official ones. Uh, I don't know of any official explanation that's accurate. I don't know of any official explanation that is not a calculated, orchestrated lie. Nothing. No official explanation is true about anything. About uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Russia, China. Uh, 9-11, you know, the World Trade Center, assassination of President Kennedy, of Martin Luther King, of Robert Kennedy, the Vietnam War, the so-called American Civil War, which was not a civil war. It's a war of northern aggression. Uh, I don't know of anything that's not alive. It comes out of the United States. You're you're like the People's Intelligence Agency. <laughs> <laughs> people's Intelligence, and um, there are other people like me, but, and um, but uh, they have the the lie. The people who tell the lies, they have more voices. And they're the government. And the people say, well, the government wouldn't lie to us. Of course it does. If the government has an agenda, if it told the people what its agenda was, people wouldn't accept it. <laughs> so it has to tell them something else and control the explanations. And that's how it goes forward with its agenda. If you just think about, let's see, I think the general... Uh, Assessment is that America's wars in the 21st century, basically wars against Muslim peoples, have cost between four and five trillion dollars, trillion dollars. While all sorts of needs at home are unmet, infrastructure's collapsing, uh, there's been nothing done to help people with their medical situation. Um, the Social Security pensions have not really gone up. Nothing like inflation. And so how did they get away with that? Lies. And it's all lies. I mean, how did anybody ever think that Saddam Hussein was a threat to the United States. It makes no sense. It's not, and now we're told that Venezuela is a threat to American national security. Well, how could this be possible? <laughs> it's not possible. It's kind of like saying I'm a threat to American national security. I mean, it, it's nonsense. And it's endless nonsense, but it's repeated over and over and over and over. It's all anybody ever hears. So Venezuela is a threat to American national security. Whiteness is a threat to American national security. Uh, recently, uh, uh, a, a dean from Beloit College was invited to the University of Minnesota and gave a speech that whiteness is a threat to American national security. And she gets a standing ovation. <laughs> well, who do you think's in Minnesota? It's all these Norwegian immigrants. They're all white. 
<laughs> Scandinavian immigrants. I met, you know, Swedes, Norway, uh, the Danes. This is where they went, the immigrants. So they stand up and clap when somebody tells them that their whiteness is a threat to American national security. So, you know, it's insanity.